Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 211, One Step Forward, Two Steps Back. Remember Harry Hensley, the young man who was studying medieval history, you know, the one with the bad trousers who eventually got a job at Bletchley, and that his warnings of the danger for the British ships to be in Norwegian waters was ignored and ships and men were lost? Well, that distrust of civilians would dissipate over time, and Director of Naval Intelligence Rear Admiral John Godfrey would be leading the way. Godfrey had been the commander of the battlecruiser HMS Repulse from 1936 to 39, which is when he was selected as Director of Naval Intelligence, or NID-17. He would be at that post until the pivotal year of 1942. His job was to oversee and coordinate naval intelligence across the divisions. Under Godfrey, NID-17 expanded rapidly, with more than 2,000 people as it took on signals, coded and uncoded, which arrived daily. But here's the twist and what the Germans did not do. Godfrey had his own country's signals sent to him as well. For he wanted to see not only what the Royal Navy was up to, but by getting both sides, he had a much fuller picture of what was going on out there. Further, until the special operations executive got up and running, Godfrey had his own teams out there gathering information. And lastly, he was the liaison between naval intelligence and the sea lords that oversaw the Navy. And yet, Godfrey was not a fan of cryptography, but people like the Prime Minister were pushing it. So Godfrey, though he thought it gave the Navy a streak of overconfidence to be able to read the enemy's messages, thought it would get them killed, again, by going into combat feeling they knew what the enemy was going to do. But despite his reticence, Godfrey did change and improve things by coming up with his own color code system that allowed the military to get behind reading signals. Very quickly, once he was in his new job, Godfrey came to tire of telling his superiors, look, what information we have is solid, because it's coming from the enemy themselves. So, he created a system that not only hid the fact that the intel was coming from captured and then broken enemy messages, but that the various levels of accuracy also gave it various levels of being trusted by the brass. Again, a simple system that hid the source and gave the straight-thinking men in uniform an idea of how trustworthy this information was. It will be apparent in a moment why this was so important, but to get to Godfrey's office, room 40, in the Citadel, you had to go through room 39, and the man in that room, at the desk, in front of the door to see Godfrey, was the one and only Ian Fleming. Like Bletchley, this area, and it was called the zoo, as it was barely controlled chaos, had its own misfits, oddballs, and the people in the zoo, mostly men, were burdened with carrying around a massive amount of overconfidence, and Fleming was certainly one of these. And when you hear how Fleming wanted to handle getting their hands on an Enigma code book, the future James Bond movies will make a lot more sense. Fleming wanted to, somehow, get hold of a German plane, obviously remove the pilots, put one of their own in the plane, and put it in a body of water where the pilot could then be rescued by a German naval vessel. And once on board, this agent 
would kill everybody on the ship, take control of it and its code books. Easy peasy, right? No shock here. It was to be called Operation Ruthless. But there was no German plane to hand, so Ruthless was canceled, which crushed the spirit of Turing and his crew. They explained to the men in uniform, look, we've done all we can. We still need a legitimate Enigma machine and the various tables and codebooks that go with it. Then we can reconstruct the wiring of the machine and the rotors. We'll be on our way. But there was no plan now, no progress. So the merchant shipping losses went on and on. The home island was tightening its belt. And now, let's go back in time, but only for a moment, no pun intended, to 1936. The British Navy, like most navies, guessed a war was coming, and so focused on designing a super destroyer. Something that was not too big to break the bank, but could, as it focused on guns over torpedoes, break up other surface ships. And fortunately for the British, 16 of these tribal-class vessels were built before war broke out. Yes, they served with distinction, but being in combat so much, it will come as no surprise that 12 of these were lost by the end of the war. By March 1941, Captain Clifford Castlin was in command of the 6th Destroyer Flotilla. His ship, the HMS Somali, would play a significant role in the next part of the Enigma story. On March 1, 1941, the HMS Somali, a super destroyer, was near the Lofoten Islands in northern Norway. The Somali approached the German naval trawler Krebs. The British destroyer moved in, hopefully before anything could be thrown overboard. Though massively outgunned, the Krebs, to its credit, fired on the approaching ship. But this caused the Somali's 4.7-inch guns to be trained on the shooter. In a matter of minutes, the Krebs was wrecked, now slowly going in a circle. The Somali took this opportunity to shell the nearby German fish oil facilities. When this was done, Castlin sent men to the damaged Krebs. Lieutenant Sir Marshal Warmington led three men, all had pistols, and the five survivors of the Krebs surrendered. Warmington, not involved with Bletchley, knew nothing of Enigma, Still, intelligence is always sought, so he rushed down to the captain's cabin and tried to open all the desk drawers. One of them would not budge, so Warmington shot the lock off with his pistol. Inside the drawer were two strange-looking discs, but his was not to reason why, but to do or die, so he grabbed the strange objects. They were the rotors for an Enigma machine. Forty-five minutes had gone by since the armed party had climbed aboard the Krebs, so Castlin ordered them to get back. He was fearful that a U-boat would find him thus exposed. Warmington received the message, but cursed, as he wanted more time. Still, orders were orders, so he ran out of the cabin, but not before grabbing a stack of papers. The title on the first page was very long and in German, so he just grabbed as many papers as he could, stuffed them in a bag, and left. Those papers were rushed to Hut 8 at Bletchley, arriving on March 12th. Not long after that, Turing and Twin, a math professional, realized they had the Enigma settings for the home waters. Also, they found the settings for the previous month, February, which is when someone remembered they had all the messages from February, just uncoded. 
So using the information from the papers brought to them, the team at least was able to reconstruct a part of the bigram tables. And with that, they started using Turing's Banbarisms process once again. But even here, the process was slow and incomplete, which meant no help could be given to any war zone. They, the people at Bletchley, were still reading messages from the past, and it was about to get worse. By this time, there had been a lull in the successful U-boat attacks, well, enough to make Admiral Donitz suspicious, and he was right to be so. OIC, or the British Operational Intelligence Service, was getting good at tracking down the U-boats enough to redirect convoys away from them. Yet Donitz guessed there was a spy, not a technological breakthrough at Bletchley Park. So he gave his U-boats a special key. So now their messages were unreadable to the rest of the Naval Enigma network. And this was serious business, as the opening months of 1941 saw an increase in convoy ships sunk. There had been 21 lost in January, 58 in February, and so far only 12 U-boats in all, for sure, had been sunk. Those numbers needed to be skewed the other way. But then came the fate of convoy SC-26. SC-26 was made up of 23 ships and going from Halifax to Liverpool, departing the Canadian port city on March 20, 1941. It was led by Commander G.T.C. Swaby on the SS Magician, but protected only by the armed merchant cruiser Worcestershire, with Commander J. Cresswell in command. The way things stood in the war at this time, the warship escorts were only provided while in the western approaches, regardless of direction. As for being out in the ocean, the protection then came from an armed merchant cruiser. Yes, this would change in time with all the lost ships. Also during this time of the Battle of the Atlantic, some U-boats were set up in a line just west of the western approaches. At that moment, as SC-26 was approaching the area, there were at least seven U-boats formed up. Time would tell what fate befell SC-26. A few days later, U-boat 76, while heading to her position in a line, spotted another convoy, OB-305, comprised of 51 ships. Before any subcommander could begin to salivate over this prospect, they were ordered to stand down. No sense in attacking ships while within or close to the range of coastal command. In other words, there was no sense in sinking several ships only to lose several subs. The exchange rate had to stay extremely unbalanced, or what was the point for Nazi Germany? Instead, U-boat 76 was ordered to follow OB-305 as she moved westward, ever further away from the land-based protection. But before the day was over, U-76 had to dive as a trawler got too close. By the time she resurfaced, OB-305 was gone. U-76 continued to hunt for the convoy, but meanwhile, other news was coming in. U-74, commanded by a Kentrat, had made contact with another convoy the next day on April 2nd. This was SC-26. Kentrat sent a message of what he had found and started stalking the ships. He would bide his time, getting close, and then 
do his part to bring Britain to her knees. Soon, three other U-boats were also in the area. Just after midnight, the four U-boats started their attack. U-46 closed in and fired on the British Reliance. Before too long, she was gone. Meanwhile, U-73 rushed in and fired on the Adderpool. This ship was badly damaged and would later sink. Upon seeing this, the merchant steamship Thoroughby rushed in to gather up survivors. And the Thoroughby would survive this encounter, but not long after that. At 6.01 a.m. on April 3rd, the morning after the night attack, Thoroughby herself would be hit by a G-7A stern torpedo from U-69. The sub would report that the Thoroughby carrying wheat had sunk. The good news was that only two of her 40 crew were lost. But what some on Thoroughby did not know was that she had already been attacked earlier that night. While still dark, U-46 had approached the merchantman and fired a torpedo that struck true. Problem was, the fish it was a dud. In a few days from this moment, the Thoroughby would be further damaged by a bomb dropped from above. But for now, this moment, she was still in the game. At 4 a.m., the U-boats came in again. The Leonidas Z. Cambanus was sunk by U-74, and then the Westpool and Indier were lost to U-73, led by Commander Rosenbaum. Convoy leader Swaby ordered the fleet to disperse at 4.41 a.m., The ships turned to separate, but suddenly the tanker British Viscount was hit by U-73. Her flames lit up the area as the other merchantmen dashed to hide in the darkness. Then the Worcestershire was hit, but stayed afloat. Now, zooming way out, when the sun rose that morning, the surviving merchantmen were racing east. Also, destroyers closer to the home island were now racing west to get to them before any more ships could be lost, which left the U-boats also heading east, trying to catch up to the target ships before the destroyers got there to save them. During this high-speed chase, relatively speaking, Swaby and the Magician made contact with a few of the other ships, so reformed SC-26. These eight ships would eventually be met by two destroyers, whereas the Worcestershire, damaged but moving under her own steam, was later met by the destroyer Hurricane and taken to Liverpool. During this, two other destroyers went to the battle scene to pick up survivors. As for the other still-scattered ships, the Heel and the Welcome Bee, they would be hunted down and sunk. Which was also the fate of more ships, the Harbel Down and the Athenic. And the Finnish freighter, the Daphne, not a part of the convoy, just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and was also lost. The last two ships were sunk a day or two after the main action. And on April 5th, U-76, while on the surface recharging her batteries, was spotted by the destroyer Wolverine. U-76 dove straight away, but the Wolverine dropped two depth charges. A minute later, the fellow destroyer Scarborough joined in with eight explosives. U-76 soon came to the surface, clearly damaged. It was then that the third destroyer, Arbertus rushed in, hoping to not only take the sub intact, but to get off her her cipher equipment. 
but the chlorine gas coming from the batteries made this impossible. Within minutes, U-76 was gone. All but one of her crew were rescued. The rest of SC-26 did reach port, though ten ships had been lost just to get to this point. Clearly something would have to change in the overall convoy system. The British knew that weather forecasting was important to the Germans. As the Battle of Britain had shown, the Germans needed to know the weather over London as it affected their bombers coming in or not. What the British did not know was that Berlin had been sending small, innocent-looking, but armed trawlers out to the North Sea. They gathered information about approaching or disappearing storms and reported it in. Further, here's another piece of the puzzle. When the codebook from the raided naval trawler Krebs came in and they started laboriously translating the messages, clearly some of those were nothing more than weather reports. So Harry Hensley put two and two together. If those trawlers were radioing in weather reports to the Navy, they must have Enigma machines on board. What we need is to capture one of those weather trawlers. We will have it all, all in one operation. But someone actually had to pull this off. This someone was Captain Clifford Castlin again of the Somali. Now, the trick was to get in, get the code books, without Berlin being any the wiser, at least for a while or failing that, that the trawler was captured, but that its capture had nothing to do with Enigma. Why? Because the British were not even supposed to know of its existence. So the Somali was put with the cruisers Birmingham, Edinburgh, and Manchester, and told to meet up with four other destroyers north of the Faroe Islands, located in between northern Scotland and Iceland, on May 6th. They were trying to appear as if some exercise was going on, as in nothing to see here. What they were really doing was a patrol. It was only a matter of time before contact was made with something. And sure enough, at 5 p.m. on May 7th, the Somali spotted smoke. It was the German vessel München. Kasselin laid down smoke and then went in at 32 knots. But when he was still three miles away, he opened fire. Why? Not to sink the ship, but rather to cause panic and hopefully make the crew forget to destroy or sink their code books. When the destroyer came alongside the weather ship, Warmington again jumped across and stopped the radio operator from sending a message. But clearly, the Enigma device was long gone, probably still on its way to the ocean floor. As this had been planned out, Captain Jasper Haynes of the OIC jumped off the Edinburgh and joined Warmington. Jasper grabbed the many pieces of paper as he could, and then he climbed aboard another destroyer, Nestor. It made best possible speed for Scapa Flow. And thence to Bletchley, three days later. As for the weather trawler, the Admiralty put it out that it had been scuttled by her own crew before the British could retrieve anything. Hopefully this calmed Berlin down and they would not prematurely change the Enigma settings. Fortunately, Turing and Peter Twin, Bletchley's first professional mathematician, were able to work out that the paperwork in the sack had the settings for the following month, June. Bottom line, this operation had proven and given OIC another option. In the future, if pressed, they could raid another weather trawler. But, of course, having their own Enigma machine and all the code books would be best. 
Was that still a possibility? The answer to that was yes, and fate would step in and help Bletchley with its shopping list, so to speak. Also helping out, but begrudgingly so, would be one Lieutenant Commander Fritz Julius Lemp, a U-boat commander beloved by his crew, hated by his superiors, and destined to play a big part in Operation Primrose. Postscript. Remembering the Thoroughby attacked with SC-26 in early April 1941, in late January 1942, Thoroughby was unescorted and having gotten separated from SC-66 when she was hit by a stern torpedo from U-109. Ten minutes later, she was gone. Three crew members died, but the rest were picked up by the American steam merchant Belle Isle. 